What was I going to say? What do you come on with Orson Welles' book for? No, well, Peter gave it me. I hadn't read it. I'm hadn't fascinated read it. by Orson Welles and any free gifts. If your life's been dull lately, why not join us in abducting a child, robbing a museum, and exhuming the dead in the name of medical science? Your partners in crime are me, Jim Hall, and me, Phil Walsh, welcoming you to this 11th edition of Midnight Video. Tonight, we stop off in Czechoslovakia, where a child raised by the personification of train-delaying weather uses a magic bedspread to save the girl of his dreams in Perinbaba. An impossibly glamorous band of international jewel thieves lose several points for style by hiring Robert Morley in Dungarees and a panicky Peter Ustinov in opulent Heisfest, Top Capi. And when Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi are teamed with the director of The Sound of Music, the results are spine-chilling. Our efforts at eternal slumber are thwarted by the body snatcher. I will be off this time next week on my friend Steve's stag weekend and I'd like to say that we'd be sort of liquored up and hanging out in the flesh pots of Devon but I don't think it's going to be anything quite as exciting uh, as that however um, Steve the guy whose wedding it's going to be um, well stag weekend has asked me to prepare a quiz about forgotten 70s celebrities um, I've got a few things together. I just wanted to test one of the rounds out on you, Phil. All right, here we go. <laughs> I've trawled around the internet, and you're familiar with that idea that you get showbiz biographies, but the people use very bad puns as the title. One of these is fake, and I wanted you to pick out which is the fake title. Okay. okay? You remember Little and Large, the comedy double act? I do. Eddie Large. He's got a biography called Larger Than Life. Kenny Baker, who played R2-D2 from Tiny Acorns. Do you know Pat Roach? Yes. Uh, just if you're unfamiliar with him, he's the German mechanic in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But he's I know also him from Alfie Desain Pat. Exactly, I'm glad you said that because the title I've got here, Alfie Desain Pat. <laughs> and Gary Newman, the synth pioneer. Newman being. That, that's that's fake. You think that's fake? Newman being. It's gotta be. <laughs> but Alfie Desain Pat's okay, is it? <laughs> yeah. Well, you're right, Newman being's ah. fake, but his biography does exist, and it's called Praying to the Aliens, <laughs> which is somehow even less forgivable. That is weird. He's an odd chap anyway, isn't he, really, Newman? Um, I bet he's... I don't know, I've seen him interviewed, and I think there's that whole stage persona, he'd probably be okay with a pint, wouldn't he? Yeah, I, th I saw him in Manchester, uh, like, about... On stage, I mean. No, 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 in around. the street, like yeah. with his missus, um, who was a big fan of his. I yeah, think he I married remember. a fan. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, I, I saw a chap running after him. But you're doing some it. robot moves there. <laughs> yes, yeah. It was I no point miming at the microphone. Sorry, <laughs> I'm miming yeah. frantically. Yes. <laughs> uh, running after him, and obviously for his autograph. And I looked around, and I was like, who's he chasing? And I saw Gary Newman, and I just thought, yeah, his friends are electric. <laughs> oh, show 11. Whip it. Whip it. <laughs> oh no, that's Diva. Oh, that's Diva. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> when death, shown here as a cackling hag, wipes out a circus troop with an avalanche. The sole survivor is the infant Jacob, who unexpectedly finds himself raised by the snow fairy in Czechoslovakian film Perin Barba. Based on the German myth of Frau Holder, popularly adapted by the Brothers Grimm, this 1985 version mixes things up with a rapidly aging Jacob fighting to save his Cinderella-like sweetheart Elizabeth from her wicked stepmother, equally wicked stepsister, and the vengeful spectre of death. Perin Barba quite an obscure film I think uh, <laughs> just the way you said that sounded like a disappointed headmaster <laughs> tut, tut, tut. Perrin Barber your progress hasn't been very good this year <laughs> not enough snow not enough feathers <laughs> sorry that's that's probably a bit doesn't make much sense not yet if you ever watched the film yeah uh, I heard about this because in the very first show 
we talked about the 70 movie challenge which I did earlier this year and yeah another guy who was doing it on the Mondo movie forum called Video Kid vs. The Void he, he found loads of amazingly obscure films and this was one of them and it caught my eye because I don't know Czech films, well Czechoslovakian Slovakian films um, like Jan Svankmeyer um, Milos Forman came from the 60s new wave um, and this, his description of it pretty much is what Jim um, just read out and yeah it's bonkers in mm. a lot of ways and I hate to say it but it's yeah it's Gilliam like or Gilliam's very like this um, you make of it what you will um, but yeah I was I was intrigued by it yeah. just the name itself yeah sounds like Reggie Perrin and Barber Papa <laughs> French is that French for candy floss Barber yeah because it was an animation is it a French storybook about Barber Papa about the little blob oh it could be I mean I was no, thinking Barber the Elephant uh, Barber Papa when I was a kid was a cartoon about these this family of blobs with Barber Papa and Barber Mama. Anyway, I'm going on. Um, yeah, I mean, just to explain the 70 movie challenge for people with memories that don't go back to the first show was that you had to watch films from around the world, didn't you? You, you couldn't yeah, watch more than five films from any one country. That's so, right. Between the be years of 1940 and, to yeah, 2009, yeah. yeah. Um, which, yeah, I said on show one, because you mentioned one called The White Reindeer, which I was interested in. Um, in seeing but the whole idea of the 70 movie challenge sounded great because you get to see other countries which I wouldn't have come across otherwise so this is probably what well, we show 11 this is probably the most way out kind of uh, I, we've, we've covered foreign films before but this is the one which felt quite alien I wasn't really familiar with the way that that country um, told stories so it, it did feel like I was on sort of unfamiliar ground here. Mm. Um, I would kind of agree with the Gilliam thing. The other, th in that it's got that storybook kind of feel to it, but it is based on a myth. Yeah. The other thing, though, um, it reminded me of is just again my childhood when maybe this wasn't the same with you, but when I was a kid, I mean, we had a very BBC household. Children's TV tended to be um, Hanna Barbera cartoons, which were very exciting. But then you get loads of interminable um, foreign film. Uh, filmed serials and yeah. specifically things like Heidi which would go on for six months seriously six months yeah and then get repeated. that was repeated when I was oh, um, probably seven or eight yeah and it was terrible wasn't it? but this I initially was kind of very looking forward to this because I remember watching the first few minutes a month back maybe just mm. to make sure that the, the copy I had worked um, and it looked fantastic it looked absolutely nuts it launched straight in with this uh, this Circus troupe and this old woman with a scythe, um, it's which a makes a noise, scythe, isn't it? but it makes a noise exactly like Max von Sydow in Flash, Flash Gordon. Gordon. Yes, yeah. it's the same sort of beep noise. Um, <laughs> I've got to say, as this movie went on, I was increasingly getting pulled away from the Gilliam and the exciting kind of visual imagination and back towards my childhood and thinking, Oh god, Heidi's gonna go on for the next six months. It just <laughs> felt very much like one of those drab serials I had to put up with in the 70s when I should have been reading books rather than watching TV um, but yeah I mean in a nutshell this of all the films we've covered is the one I had the biggest struggle to actually sit through I've got to say really yeah oh wow yeah I just watched it this morning yeah I was, well you texted me and said um <laughs> Oh, I'm just starting the day with Per and Barber, and this is what eight o'clock in the morning and I thought yeah. oh you poor bastard <laughs> yeah um, well, yeah, did it wake you up in the morning? It didn't wake me up. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. Was it like a mean. gentle stretch? <laughs> a gentle tug. A bowl of muesli? I actually had a bowl of old brown with it, and that was really exciting. No, no. I'm, I'm was doing there a it. range of Perrin Barber merchandise that got with you? Uh, I think we're doing it a slight disservice. Uh, well, maybe I am. Um, I quite enjoyed it. It's funny you mentioned that sort of BB, BBC... How they chuck in those um, bizarre European serializations. I was recalling how I'd watch stuff as a child and be quite bored by something that should be interesting. Yeah. You know, like a fairy tale, basically. And so when I was looking into Perrin Barber, the background of it, into Frau Holder or Mother Holder, it's quite a succinct story. You know, it's 
there's not all this silly love love story business which bogs down Perrin Barber mm. basically where you've got Jacob who's um, lusting well lusting's probably too strong a word because he's a very young child when he first sees her well it's a bit all over the shop isn't it he's mm. physically young but isn't the idea that he's mentally growing older I don't well, know things th- weren't th- made the too other thing clear is, wh- why did Pe- uh, Perrin Barber sorry Perrin, Perrin Barber, Barber is the, f- the feather um, well, she's the snow it's a little muddle isn't yeah. it I <laughs> What I gathered just watching it, so before I did any research, it was she was the personification of the snow, or possibly all of the winter weather, mm. who is somehow linked to death. So I don't know if the sisters, sisters aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they explicitly say they're sisters. So I don't know if this is some sort of pantheon of uh, spirits and they're all kind of hanging out together. But we only get to see the two of them. Death, who is a bold old cackling hag. Zelda who, from Terrorhawks. Yeah. Um, who momentarily can transform into some uh, beautiful young woman. Um, but yeah, at the very beginning of the film, um, the circus troupe gets wiped out in an avalanche and Jacob uh, gets whisked off to live with the snow fairy. Um, why? I was very puzzled. I think I wrote down in my, when I was watching it, I was like, hmm? why? Thinking that later on it would be answered, but mm. it, it never is. It's a muddle. Like I said, I like you I looked into the, the, the Brothers Grimm story in the German myth and it was something when I read that I actually recognised and I didn't recognise it from this because I think actually it was adapted by Robert Crumb as well into a very short uh, comic and the plot there is more about Mother Holder and there's the industrious daughter and the lazy daughter and they you know the industrious daughter goes off she falls down a well and gets transported to this meadow does a lot of work off her own back for Mother Holder and is rewarded with money, uh, with gold. The, indus- the the lazy daughter goes to get the gold but just sits around doing nothing. And I think by the end is covered in a lot of effluent, <laughs> which she can never remove for the rest of her life. I didn't recognise that story here. Now, when I read it, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, there is the well and this, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I can't see anything about this Jacob character. No, it no. seems like they've imposed a, um, I think a, a romance in there. But I'm wondering if there's some sort of like Slovakian folklore yeah. in there that, um, because if you do read on IMDb, one of the user reviewers on there says how they've grown up with this film, and anyone who's familiar, anyone from the Czech Republic or Slovakia or Czechoslovakia as it was back then, yeah. um, we're doing it old would, school. Yeah, they they'd be more than familiar with it they, this particular it. adaptation yes story well that's they didn't right. um, explicitly Specify. say so um, I'm just presuming that uh, Jack Abisko has well yeah he's added his own his own take on it yeah but um, like I say I was curious to watch this because I was unfamiliar with the way storytelling might work with Czechoslovakia yeah did you find that muddling or exciting or it, in some ways, it felt like a series that had been put in, made into a film. I know it was. I think it was made for television. Yeah. Whether it was meant to be, you know, a ninety-minute serialized. Or whatever, yeah. I'm not sure. um, yeah. Because it did was, seem a bit stop-start. Yeah, it was just all over the bloody place. A lot of the times, it, it jumped from as he was changing, as Jacob was changing. Yeah, we better explain that as well. While Jacob stays with Perrin Baba, he remains as what he's meant to be about. He's under 10, isn't he? He's yeah, a kid. He's but then I think as soon as he steps out of her realm, just goes around onto a kind of, um, what would you call it, a, a balcony kind of area, he suddenly ages to his true kind of years. And then later on he ages again. And um, <laughs> ah, I don't care, I'll sound frivolous about this. I love the fact that to represent him going from 20 to a few years after that, they give him a moustache. <laughs> because prior to that, they, they visually... The way they make sure you know visually it's the same guy is he's got curly hair throughout it. So by the time he ends up with a curly permanent moustache, he just looks like some 80s footballer. I was going to say he looks like he's playing for the German football league, like the <laughs> yes. Bundesliga. You could imagine him in a shell suit, Andre. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's no one's idea of a romantic lead, I don't think. But that's another problem I've got with this. There's, the heart of it is this romance, and I didn't, I didn't see that. You don't at get all. it. No, no. I, I didn't get that at all. In a way, because he comes along as this fantastical character who uh, has no fear of anything, and he comes down to the earthly realm, and just yeah, sort he chooses, of he himself. gives up his immortality, I suppose, to do that, doesn't he? It's yeah, kind of um, yeah. Actually, there's a Greek sort of element to all this, isn't there? I suppose 
but you did say pantheon of gods before so did you yeah yeah and everyone just sort of accepts that there's this chap there who looks after the peacocks he just happily wants to be a servant for this uh mayor and his daughter and is it yeah because elizabeth is the his actual daughter mm-hmm. and he remarries after her mother dies yeah i was i was i think it was more well effort than it was worth to keep up with who was yeah. related to who here because he was told uh, like i say this may just be how or maybe if people are used to this story they don't feel they needed to make it too explicit but i had trouble keeping up or caring what was happening to anybody <laughs> in this did uh, did you find yourself <laughs> entranced by the uh, but I, I thought they had some quite interesting visual aspects. Um, there's a there's some moments where they're utilising uh, <laughs> the Perrin Barber's sheet to fly around. Yeah, the magic duvet. Sort of, yeah, the magic duvet. That's um, it. It's pretty much like a hot air balloon, isn't it? It's it's uh, actually it looks good in Perrin Barber's realm. She has this huge bed frame with uh, it looks like this big undulating. Uh, it's like a sheet with a load of hot air being blown underneath mm. it. So it looks like a very extravagant waterbed, but eventually uh, Jacob uses it to sort of sail away. And you know, you can say you can see how it's being done because they're usually cutting the uh, cutting the shot off at the top, so there's clearly some something holding it up at the top. But it looked raggedy, you know, it had it, a yeah, lot of ropes hanging down and patchworky and Yeah, that was all right. I've what I thought you were going to mention that I definitely disagree with about the the visuals. Yeah, um, that's all they did to represent magic in it was mm. put, running the film backwards. Mm. You sparing me that might be okay. And I mean, um, have you ever seen the Cocteau movie, um, The Belle Le Bet? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that uses a lot yeah. of backwards stuff, but that it uses a lot of other techniques as well. So they all work. Uh, Actually, they did it really well in Haxon, didn't it, with the coins? Yeah, the coins yeah, were it works well. But here you can tell there, um, there's some kind of um, hold on, everybody. We're going to do something absolutely fantastic now. <laughs> it's like, oh, you've played the film backwards, so those leaves go into a pile, or make a love heart, or uh, or the fish come out of the, the fish uh, come out of the ice hole. Yeah, actually, there's I, a bit though where the just after that when they've caught all the fish that mm-hmm. have magically come out of the ice yeah. hole, but the camera there's a long shot and. There's like wolves and the trees and wolves. stuff. <laughs> wolves. Wolves. <laughs> and it, it just really looked like that famous picture by Bruegel. Mm. I thought, in the, you know, the snow covered. Yeah, I mean, there was some. I'm sure he wasn't probably aiming for that. No, no, no. <laughs> it just seeped through. Um, no, the one shot in this I did really like. I did think it looked good, but it also just kept my interests going briefly. Um, I don't know, about halfway through uh, they come across a circus troupe although they're the lamest circus I've ever seen in a film I think they're just represented by people doing a few cartwheels aren't they? But the leader of the circus troupe looks like some filthy old man doesn't he? He's he looks like something out of an Emilia Costa Rica film I thought. <laughs> with his huge nose and this ghastly moustache of his but he just, and also the way they've done his voice he sounds very throaty and you know but he um, unexpectedly is able to swim through the air, and it it's quite a disturbing <laughs> image <laughs> to see this guy who looks like a paedophile or something just uh, sw- uh, doing the breaststroke in midair. <laughs> and they do a quite a good job of covering up how they're doing it. But you know that was the one bit I thought looked good. But, but did also you think that was a circus troupe from the beginning? Because he seemed to be able to regenerate, couldn't he? That chap, because he was really old there. Yeah, I I wondered. Yeah, I, I wondered think he was that. Although at the again, beginning, and then he's young again at the end. Yeah, because there's a point when mm. there's kind of a wake for him, and then yeah, I wasn't like I said earlier. I'm not. I wasn't entirely sure what was going on here a lot of the time, but I didn't really feel like putting the work in. I don't know if you found this, but the subtitles. Obviously, whoever did them speaks better English than I do. Uh, Czech, mm. uh, Czech or Slovak? Slovakian. Yeah, sorry for my ignorance, um, but they weren't brilliant subtitles um, in a very short sentence tenses would change around and it just made it even harder to really get a grip on what was happening so, yeah I noticed towards the end it's like what is it was always what it is yes <laughs> and you have married her <laughs> yeah married her South, South African version uh, yeah um, because there's a part of the story where Jacob is accused of killing Elizabeth because she goes away to be with Perrin Baba and He's faced with death, 
Yeah. Um, but he can be saved if one of the villagers marries him. Yeah. Why? Yeah, that's something that the mayor introduces in his wisdom, which um, brings me to a scene. Oh, is this the King Solomon? The wisdom of King Solomon. <laughs> awfully done, don't you think? Yeah, because it kind of we, just it's bare-faced. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I know every, people are probably familiar with this. the judgment of Solomon. Uh, is the old story of uh, two women who are both arguing over a baby, and Solomon says, "Well, we'll sort this out. We'll cut the baby in half." And the true mother of the baby says, "Oh, we'll let her have it," and so that proves that she's the true mother. They do their version of it here with a sheep. With a sheep, <laughs> which just. <sighs> Why and um, does it? Really it's so badly really. done as well because it's all done in about twenty seconds flat, and there's no kind. It's of just a precursor to Elizabeth's decision. Yeah. Um, oh, he let him marry. It is, but I think the scene because it's immediately followed with one of the characters going there, and there is full of wisdom, and you know he knows what he's doing. You think, oh God, he's <laughs> it's, it's certainly not a good director of a film or staging a dramatic <laughs> scene, is he? I'm going to give this a thumbs down. I I found it hard going. Um, yeah, it did. Uh, it's probably unfair of me, but it did bring back too many childhood memories of watching dreary European film serials. Yeah, I mean, I, I I didn't find it as hard work to get through. To be mm. honest, though, it, I, I think there was um, it held my attention. You just were full about. of pepper eight o'clock this morning. <laughs> yeah, um, but I am interested in Bathory. I think he's working on oh, with right. Anna Friel. What on the Countess? Yes, the yeah, Countess right. of Bathory. Okay. Um, I. It's meant to be the one of the largest or the most expensive Czech production, Slovakian production, sorry, ever made. But it sounds quite fascinating. I think he, I don't know, maybe it's of its time, in some ways. But yeah, mid eighties. Um, something I really didn't like with this was the music was very repetitive. There was that organ music drove me nuts. Oh, like the pianola. It's like a steam, like a merry-go-round, like a steam organ. Yeah. yeah. But then there is a section where they have it with strings, and yeah, it sounds much okay. better. Yeah. Although I did, I didn't mind the sort of new age panpipe music in it. That was, uh, <laughs> that was quite charming. But there was, it's a largely charmless film. I didn't, I didn't get involved in it at all. <laughs> Tiring of spoofs of his 1955 robbery masterpiece, Rafifi, director Jules Dasson decided to outdo them all in 1964 with epic international crime comedy, Top Capi. Avaricious Melina Mercouri heads a team of thieves including Maximilian Schell, Robert Morley and Peter Ustinov, hell-bent on lifting an emerald-encrusted dagger from Istanbul's Top Capi Palace, an impossible job that will involve plenty of acrobatics and a mechanical parrot. Forgive me. A strange thing happens to me. Difficult to explain. Rafifi, we've just mentioned. I've never seen it. Yeah, I've seen it, um, but I don't really remember it that well. I think it was a time when I was watching so many films in one go that they all were blending into each other. But yeah, I mean, it's all about the heist, isn't it? In that, um, the silent heist, it's set the set the foundations for um, many heist movies that followed. And yeah, well, he came along and did, did Top Cappy a few yeah. years later. Well, yeah, I've not seen Rafifi, but I imagine it's a far more serious movie than this. Oh, it's it's a noir movie, it's right? Whereas this noir. is this is a sort of loopy caper. Yeah, this is a very sixties movie. This is the kind of film that when I think of the sixties, this general oh European mm. um, settings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just think of um, Clouseau and. Absolutely. Um, Bond, that yeah. era Bond. Well, yeah, this has a lot in common with those early Bond films. In that this was a time before people really travelled the world much, so a lot of it is taken up with what I call travelogue scenes. <laughs> it's quite happy for the camera to just show you what Istanbul looks like. Mm. A lot of the local colour, you know, quite literally with the way it's filmed. Um, although, I didn't think that detracted from it in the way that it does with early James Bonds, you know. Uh, watch Goldfinger not that recently probably a year ago but there's a scene in that when they're actually playing the James Bond music just while he's checking into a hotel and putting his suitcases down because the idea of 
that international travel must have been so exotic. Mm. Whereas this, the world they're showing still seems worth looking at. And so, you know, I, I thought that was fantastic. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. It does have a major problem for me. Um, can you guess what it is? The length? No, no. It's, a, it's about two hours long. I thought that was okay, though. Oh, I thought it was too long. Yeah. I don't know. Give me a clue. <laughs> that was your the narration yeah, uh, yeah. well th the main character in this uh, Melina Mercuri I just couldn't get past her at all Mrs Dassin um, eventually Later. she was yeah uh, yeah no I agree I was a bit perturbed at the beginning because it was a lot of two camera stuff yeah she's breaking the fourth wall straight off there's a really bizarre opening uh, with this kind of kaleidoscopic effect and then her... A Wheel well, of Fortune. <laughs> yeah, the thing it most resembles, although this did it first, is the opening of Man with the Golden Gun when you've got that kind of uh, spooky kind of fairground. Because, uh, yeah, you've no idea where you are, really, to begin with. You've got all these waxworks, very sudden cutting. And, yeah, the Wheel of Fortune with her face superimposed. It's like, you know, a film technique. It's not meant to be happening in, the f um, in real life. Uh, with her cackling and then addressing the audience going it can be done it can be done but um, she's awful I, you know I'll give her her due she's she's acting in English which clearly isn't her first language no. she was Greek I think wasn't yeah, she yeah she was yeah. and just you know um, I, I, I appreciate the charms of the older lady but she's very much mutton dressed as lamb here isn't she she's got this bleach blonde hair and so much depends on in these kind of films so much depends on you siding with the criminals over the authorities mm. and she just stops that dead for me the others you know they they're well luckily we have max shell who uh maximilian shell who's astonishing in this, isn't he? he's because i'm only used to him in black hole mm. but i couldn't believe how glamorous he was in this he's, he's quite a uh a beefcake isn't he yeah he's very if there was ever going to be a, a Swiss stroke Austrian James Bond, then yeah. uh, Shell would have been your man. But it's great and a really good performance as well. But her, she's a lunatic. And when you <laughs> first see her, she's cackling insanely. There's lots of versions of her with all this, uh, all these photographic effects. And she just seems obsessed with getting this emerald encrusted dagger because she quite likes the look of it. It would almost be more acceptable if she just said, I want a load of money. Um, but throughout and she just acts barking mad throughout it I couldn't stand her and she just she just put the brakes on every time she appeared which is throughout the film mm, yeah I, I, I coped with her you I didn't have the same problem <laughs> yeah. I put up with her her performance is overridden by Ustinov who, who was absolutely brilliant steals a shot I mean he won an Oscar I think didn't supporting he for act, supporting, supporting actor yeah. he's and he's kind of the linchpin of the film because yeah. the whole thing is they're this super professional bunch of uh, it's it's yeah it would be too far to say this is the pilot for Mission Impossible is it you've got all these experts well, in their own field what's his face um, Bruce Geller said yeah. that he saw it and he decided to make Mission Impossible right. okay. the other thing to say which we have to say is the break in itself is pretty much shot for shot the Brian De Palma, De Palma Mission Impossible yeah. with the uh, the Langley break-in with the wires um, but we're getting ahead of ourselves there you're right, Ustinov's fantastic in this and I wasn't especially looking forward to him because my experience of him is being quite an over-the-top actor and he's usually playing uh, you know, Poirot or uh, Spartacus I know mm. him from and here you know, he's playing this really kind of two-bit He's not even a con man, is he? He's just playing. He's just uh, selling knockoff um, tourist gifts and stuff, isn't he? He's, uh, and he's brilliant because he is. He does go with the. He runs with the role and sort of. He's he's hamming it up a bit, but he doesn't smother the rest of the cast. Even when he's not delivering dialogue, he's always got that fantastic look on his face of "Gotta go now." It's, uh, <laughs> and he's brilliant, yeah. But yeah, amongst this band of really professional thieves. Uh, you know, fake conspires so that he plays a pivotal role in it, which he doesn't want to. But he's also at the same time uh, kind of a, a stool pigeon for the Turkish police, who think they've got a bunch of terrorists on their hands rather than jewel thieves. Um, yeah, he's brilliant. I love him. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I might have got the wrong end of the stick, but I had some weird links where I thought he really reminded me of Tom Hardy who was in Bronson and Inception 
uh, facial stuff going on though is very similar yeah. and then I even thought that there's a his role almost seemed like Killian Murphy's in Inception where he's like brought in as this sort of to you to be used as deception yeah and then obviously it changes as time goes on and to further link that up there's a bit where uh, there's huge scenes of Turkish wrestling and that reminded Quite me of homoerotic uh, aren't I've written it down here I think the whole film has like quite homoerotic tendencies well there's we say the, yeah go on there's the the servant guy the chap who's snogging Euston off oh the cook the drunk the drunken cook um yeah, I, I just thought that was sort of played for laughs, but certainly the Turkish wrestling scene, which is punctuating, well, it's not punctuating, it's the build-up to the the heist itself, which is kind of the most part of the last half hour of the movie. The fact that Makuri, who's kind of on edge throughout the film, is clearly getting aroused by this, isn't she? Doesn't she even start taking her clothes off during this wrestling yeah, she, scene? she takes her... Um, kind of petticoat or yeah. something off. It's weird, but yeah, guys oiling each other down, and this is all filmed in um, fairly uh, lustful. It really is because there's like real like arms down trousers and stuff, mm, and as a greeting. And then, yeah, and then it cuts across to like Robert Morley, who's like sweating <laughs> and uh, eyebrows raised, and yeah. Well, yeah, let's stick with Robert Morley <laughs> with his uh, with his dungarees and his, his toys. Yes. Um, yeah, again, it's difficult to describe this without referring back to Mission Impossible. But that's it's always something I like in these kind of films when you're assembling the team. And it's just so wonderful when they find him and he's got all of his, uh, his little workshop. And just to see him in dungarees and the way he explains how the, um, the floor alarm in the museum works with a ping pong ball. The last half hour of the movie is this heist. Uh, were you happy that it took that long? Or you, you've hinted already that you thought it went on a bit too long. Yeah, I, I thought it was way too long. I think it could have been mm. an hour and a half. Um, it probably could have been, but I, mean, I got the feeling the way it was set up, and also that the first time you and I were coming across it was the trailer which I showed you on YouTube, which goes on for about four minutes. Mm, yeah. And you just get the feeling that films were probably done uh, as that kind of big night act. Not that they're not now, but... Um, they weren't made for economy, were they? This certainly wasn't. This is this. No, uh, yeah. it's quite lavish. This is it? this huge feast. What I enjoyed about it was the way I was almost guessing when are they going to do the heist because they were talking about going to the wrestling, and I was very puzzled as to when they're going to fit it in. To be honest, and when it actually started taking place, even just like there was like another build up to them, you know, getting inside um, the museum. That was another like ten minutes. I was like, "You don't need this, really." Uh, well, but then it got into it, and I was like, "Oh, wow!" Yeah, I mean, that's a major point. Did you actually find the heist itself particularly tense? Yeah, I did actually. Yeah, um, it it's been referenced fairly extensively in yeah, De Palma's Mission Impossible with a break in, but also the Return of the Pink Panther starts with a similar kind of heist. Although, whereas this is going from above, mm. the Return of the Pink Panther one's going across the floor and under security beams um, so yeah it's trying to get inside this glass case using a lot of acrobatics I was halfway through watching that and well maybe not halfway but I was aware I was kind of appreciating it more than actually getting into it whereas yeah watching things like Mission Impossible and even the Pink Panther I remember feeling ah, are they going to get through with this and I'm not sure if that way really goes back to the fact that I found this woman so barking mad that I didn't <laughs> care if she uh, got caught or not but yeah I, mean, I think it looks good it looks amazing, the framing is with the the box surrounding the the figure with the emerald encrusted dagger, and then you've got this character who's suspended above it, performing these acrobats. This sort of love child of Lee Evans and Charles Aznavour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's um, a weird looking chap. Yeah, the human fly in it who's mute, mm. and uh, yeah, the, the first thing speaks he speaks with his body. He does indeed. <laughs> but isn't the first thing he does come out of a swimming pool and then do loads of handstands? And you just think, yeah, you probably don't want any acting on top of that. Maybe Jean-Claude Van Damme would have done all this uh, a few decades later. Yeah, The thing is, throughout the film, I appreciate what the comedy's there, and especially because the thing I love about this most is Ustinov's character. But the downside of that is by the time it gets to this heist, I yeah, I don't really care what's happening I, I don't feel any sense of tension or peril which 
is probably a bad thing. Well, it definitely is a bad thing, isn't it? Because thinking back, even with the Pink Panther, that heist's done at the beginning of the movie, mm. and there were, there were a couple of slapstick jokes with the guards, I remember, but you haven't got into the full Cluzo kind of business, so I think you're more inclined to sort of get involved with it that way. Actually, there's a trivia point here. Um, this, it, Ustinov's in this, yeah, as we've said, but that was originally offered to Peter Sellers, but he yeah. didn't want to work with Maximilian Schell. Um, although, interestingly, you probably know this, Ustinov was originally going to play Inspector Clouseau. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because no. um, mm. the first Pink Panther film's more David Niven is the main character. It's, mm. it's the jewel thief, the, fa the Phantom. Clouseau's more of a supporting character. Um, but, yeah, Ustinov wasn't able to do it, so Sellers came in and, you know... Role reversal. Yeah. Mm, interesting. I can't imagine Sellers playing that role though. Um no, I don't want to. I mean I'm I'm so pleased to have seen this because like I say, I didn't really have a lot of regard for Eustonoff before, but now I think actually yeah, he's so good here. Yeah. You know, it's proper acting where he doesn't have to be he doesn't have to even be speaking to capture your attention just with the way his eye his eyes seem to be uh because I, I really drawn. knew him from growing up as the narrator on Peter and the Wolf, right. which I had, and also um, from his audiences with, yeah. where you know he's a very erudite raconteur, basically. Which is watching this was the complete opposite. I, and yeah, I've seen um, uh, Death on the Nile and his uh, Poirot um, roles, but yeah, this was it was something else. It was uh, it was fantastic. I wanted to mention quickly there's a certain camera shot when uh, they're escaping from the heist and they go down like a rope slide mm. and the camera goes right behind Maximilian Schell's character of it's a behind the head shot mm. and I'm sure someone copied this about 30 years later in the Bourne Ultimatum when he's running through Tangiers and what? the cameraman follows him through I thought, oh wow, it's been done before already. Albeit on a rope, but... <laughs> so do you think James Bond will be ripping that off next? <laughs> Probably, whoever he's going to be. <gasps> oh no, it's still Craig, I think. Oh really? Oh, I thought yeah. he was poo-pooing it. Uh, I don't know, things change from day to day. Hope he goes away. Oh. Dominic West, I, I say. <laughs> Not Timothy West. <laughs> Fred. <laughs> <laughs> And do you know what he used to say to me? He used to say, Arthur, he used to call me Arthur. Arthur, you're a carbuncle on the behind of humanity. Masters of Menace, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi's final on-screen teaming came in 1944 for producer Val Luton's The Body Snatcher. Based on Robert Louis Stevenson's short story, this medical drama in which a mother comes to Edinburgh seeking a cure for her paralysed daughter takes a dark turn when celebrated surgeon Dr. Wolf McFarlane runs foul of Karloff, starring here as cabman, grave robber and dog murderer John Gray. When we dislike a friend, we dissect him. Val Luton has uh, quite a reputation. Cat people. I walked with a zombie. I found them both quite boring. <laughs> not tense. <sighs> it's not top cappy, is it? <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, that, that reputation's been sort of hanging around. I've I've tried, but I've even though as I get older, I'm much, I'm finding myself drawn towards kind of horror movies from the 30s and 40s and the atmosphere over, you know, uh, gore or whatever. Those particular movies, especially Cat People, I just don't get. I mean, I I should give them another look. But I was pleased when you suggested this because I've not seen nearly enough Karloff or Lugosi, um, or at least not kind of. I think most people will know this. Lugosi uh, has his peak time, and then there's the time when he becomes sort of a drug addict, or all that 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 over um, that overtakes him, and he's more the figure that we know from the sort of Edward uh, biopic. Um, so yeah, I, I'm guessing this is possibly one of the first bits of prime Karloff I've seen. I'm used to seeing him at the end of his career as the Michael Reeves movie, The Sorcerers, and. Uh, Mad Monster Party. Mm. Um, I thought he was really good in this. I think he puts in a really good performance. I was astounded by his performance, actually. Yeah. I only know him from Frankenstein, so is this lumbering brute. Yeah, I mean, still something you have to put some work into to yeah. do that effectively, but here it's 
mostly about his vocal delivery. He's, he's standout though. I think he's head and shoulders above everyone else who who shared screen time with. Um, I mean, you've got like uh, Henry Daniel playing Wolf McFarlane, who and Russell Wade as Fatis. Is it Fatis? The assistant. Yeah, the, the assistant. Yeah, the kind of lead. Well, is the matinee idol kind of figure? Yeah, isn't they're it? they're just so they're delivering their lines as you would expect from a film like this or a time like that even but Karloff he he, he brings something quite contemporary in his mm. performance I think there's a uh, facial movements I mean he's already got like a brilliant face for uh, this kind of film um, but there's an edge to his performance which is um, there's a definite but quite certainly done menace with him yes because he doesn't make any oh I, this is the script he doesn't make a lot of direct threats but just the way he enunciates things mm. makes it clear what his intention is and god yeah he just he really feels like he's got the power of life and death over people <laughs> doesn't he but it's especially impressive because when he first turns up as this coachman and he's carrying this um, paralysed girl he seems really nice as pie doesn't he he's saying I'll oh, pat my horses and all this oh sorry I forgot about your problem again and then later he turns up and you know okay it's a well directed movie with lighting and everything but it's the way he just uh, it's the way he makes it clear he's going to make life hell for this uh, surgeon who mm. that they have a history together but suddenly Karloff uh, seemingly on a sixpence has just decided to turn after some, some years and decides he wants a bigger cut of the action I wrote down it reminded me of Cape Fear you know the Max KD character how He's be obviously been wronged in the past, and all of his energy just goes into trying to screw up this person who he wants to be, who he was the scapegoat for, mm -hmm. basically. And yeah, he he really channels some energy into this character. I think. Yeah, it's amazing. Is. And yeah, um, I've got to say, I mean, I don't, I don't know if Karloff's. Um, sorry, Legos is not given a great role here, no. but. I think he does okay with it, but it, he just doesn't really compete. And it's a bit of a stooge, isn't he? He is, and like I say, I, it's a bit unfair because I don't know how far along his addiction uh, Lugosi was at this point. But it does make me curious to go back and watch other movies like um, is it The Black Cat and mm. Invisible Ray and these kind of. Films. I'd love to see the two of them really going head to head. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I mean, it's another uh, blank spot on my. Uh on my history of cinema yeah, well, <laughs> that's the only yeah. problem doing this podcast it makes me look like I've never watched any films but I'm sure everybody out there has massive <laughs> uh, ignorance spots um, what did you think of the film generally though I mean we love Karloff's performance um, you, you said that you mentioned earlier kind of the style of the 40s because I went in with these kind of prejudices about Val Luton and I was expecting a snooze fest just the fact that it does open in a very short bread tin kind of way doesn't it with this uh, street singer uh, scenes of Edinburgh in the 19th century and everyone's uh, Edinburgh. in Edinburgh Edinburgh uh, Shandy hats and all this kind of stuff and a kind of vague retelling of the Greyfriars Bobby myth at the beginning as well yeah, as I, know, I found quite because I I grew up watching Greyfriars Bobby at the film so I was quite surprised to see that um, put in there yeah uh, it, I mean, it was creaky I thought as a whole they Again, it's like I said before. You know, these these films are often of their time, and you sometimes you just have to go with it. There were moments of real interest, though. I thought um, some of the sound design was interesting. The echoing of the horses' hooves and the singing you mentioned before um, meets a demise later on, and I think that's fantastic. It's used yeah. again yeah. in a very clever way, and you know, Robert Wise, the director, went on to do. The Sound of Music, <laughs> Star Trek The Motion Picture, Day um, the Earth Stood Still. Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah. No, he's he's not just simply a director for hire, he's got um, some stylistic sensibilities about him and it comes through I thought. Um, but overall it yeah, it was it was creaky. Yeah, I don't know. I, like I said, I started off with some prejudices, but it did win me over quite mm. rapidly. It's largely Carlos' performance, but I did get quite involved with it as well. I mean, I think the worst thing about it is um, McFarlane, this sort of brilliant surgeon, is meant to be. The idea is that he's a brilliant man, but doesn't have any real heart to him. And when he's, uh, it's clear he's capable of curing this paralysed girl. 
but his bedside manner is so bad that she's not responding to him. And this is it's I'm not gonna say it's the worst child acting I've ever seen, but it's 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 down there. Mm. Yeah, this uh and again it's it's a lot of it's to do with the, the, the scripted dialogue as well, but um she's pretty terrible. <laughs> Something that I thought was intriguing because my knowledge of it of this period of cinema isn't isn't vast by any means but they didn't seem to be too done with the audience where usually you know exposition is offered mm -hmm. up through the dialogue quite readily but there are certain elements of this story you know characters who you weren't aware what their standing was until later such as McFarlane's wife yeah, I mean, she's great in it, but also the whole mystery of what links um, Carl and McFarlane. Yeah. It's clear there is something. Um, it's almost like a blackmail thing that's going on there, but it's a while before we find out what the nature of that is. But it's, yeah, it's teased out and it keeps your interest. Mm. I found that quite fascinating because I'm quite used to watching films from that period where you're literally being told what's happening and what's about to happen and yeah it, it kept me guessing um, and trying to um, you can sort of not that you can't guess what's going to happen because of the number of characters on the screen if anything <laughs> but yeah and also there's like the whole moral conundrum of the film you know the, the, the idea that they want to save lives well certain characters want to save lives but in order to do it they have to be absolutely unethical yeah. about it it raises a lot of questions which I think around that time because they keep referring back to Burke and Hur don't yeah, they that was a while earlier I think the film set just before the anatomy laws brought in so things were sort of changed considerably but yeah it's that does give it something interesting because it's not just their ghouls for the sake of it there's, no. there's a real well what am I going to do I, and they, they do state it explicitly a few times um the first corpse that Karloff, we see Karloff bringing back uh, is a, a young guy who's only recently died. He's the one that the dog is guarding at the graveyard. And yeah, he makes it clear that young man would still be alive if I'd been able to access the bodies to do this kind of stuff because I, I, I'd have found a technique of saving him. Mm. There's a wonderful bit later also, and he's using brandy glasses to show Karloff how he would have mended a, sp how he would have mended a spine and why he thinks it should work. And yeah, things like that really worked, I think. And also, um, there's the wonderful scene when you do get the proper uh, confrontation between Karloff and Lugosi. I think that is really good. Uh, nice. Karloff's trying to, sorry, Lugosi's trying to blackmail Karloff because he knows that uh, Karloff's been using some uh, pretty despicable ends to get hold of his corpses. And uh, Karloff acts like he's quite happy that he's been discovered and you know uh, admires Lugosi's uh, enterprising nature <laughs> and the fact that that's clearly not what is going on just really gave it something sinister yeah it gave it a real edge yeah because yeah, he's so fantastic throughout and his uh, yeah I mean it's I about what we're talking about his car he's <laughs> so good at it I'd, uh, did he and Ustinov ever team up I'd love to see the two of them together <laughs> I wonder what they could do well, that'd be difficult, very difficult. There was a dog that bothered me during the last job. People are so concerned about dogs. Show 11, in the can. Good stuff. Well, who knows, I'll listen back <laughs> when you've edited it all together. Um, but carrying on from last time, we're gonna have another competition now. We've got two DVDs to give away. Um, lucky, lucky people. Lucky people. Just to make it clear, we sort of you, we have two winners, so you get one disc each, and we've got a strange double bill here. Uh, Condor Man with Michael Crawford, uh, the Disney superhero movie from uh, where is it, nineteen eighty-ish, and El Topo, uh, Halorendo Hodorowsky's surreal western. The question this time relates to Condor Man, which stars Michael Crawford. Uh, Crawford was famous for playing the Phantom of the Opera. One of the films we've reviewed recently also featured an opera singer, and uh, if you want to win one of these discs, uh, just let us know which film you think that was. And if you send your answers to us at midnightvideo at hotmail.co.uk. And you can send us an email. Yeah, just send, anyway, us, just send us some feedback. Um, or you can keep in touch with us via our Facebook page, 
midnight video just do a search there's a few people liking us now yes thank you for that um leave us a bit of feedback on itunes always welcome and keep up to date with us on our own website which is midnight-video.com um with all sorts of new stuff being posted up on there um oh something we should have mentioned a few shows back if you are interested in knowing what kind of films we're going to be covering in future shows get in touch with us through the hotmail address and um We'll get an email out to you telling you what we're going to be reviewing on upcoming shows because I know some people like to be surprised. Um, I think we quite like to be surprised. <laughs> so, um, whereas other people like to have a chance to watch the films before we uh, start rambling on about them. Yeah, so if you do send an email, just write future film forecast in the subtitle, in the title, so I know that you you want to be added to the mailing list. And also, don't forget, we're on Twitter, Midnight Video, um, writing inane comments at all different times of the day. And finally, just I'll rattle off some names here for people who've been kind to us. Or, yes, we're uh, very grateful. Yeah, so John Fishwick, Andy McCartan, who Andy's kindly sent us some DVDs to take a look at, to review, and maybe we can offer them up as a prize later on burnt offerings uh also marie hepworth and max wren from on twitter who are giving us some great recommends so get on with the recommends all of you and i just that sounds get, like an order get on with the recommends now chop chop uh and i also want to say hi to matt nieder on twitter who worked out finally that we were sat next to each other at last year's fright fest Ah. yeah because there are pictures of you on the mondo movie facebook page aren't there i think they are people get to see your true (gasps) your true self scary i'll post a photo up of jim (laughs) (laughs) i think i may have actually had a tagging disabling thing (laughs) possible but yeah talking of fright fest we'll well we're going to be there this year do you think yeah definitely we're well, definitely going to be there I'm pretty sure I am as well um, mm. so we're waiting for tickets to go on sale for that yeah early next month so if you're going to f- go to Fright Fest then let us know that'd be cool we can all hook up have some beers beforehand and after and during yeah during. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah um, lord knows how I'm going to cope with that it's been a while Oh my goodness! Someone's crashing about next door to us. We're we're in an office with partition walling, so uh, something very exciting has got. Man, it's like the start of Casino Royale in there. There's someone getting. We better go quick before they flush <laughs> the toilet. <laughs> right, okay. Well, yeah. Thanks for listening, as always, and we'll be back uh, next week, hopefully. Okay. Bye. <laughs> bye bye. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. They say music hath charm to soothe the savage beast.